Good morning. Happy Easter to everyone. And happy first fruits to you all. Some of you are saying, oh, there he goes with that first fruit stuff again. He does that every Easter. Well, you know, our Messiah died for our sins on Passover. And on the third day, the Feast of First Fruits is celebrated. And early that Sunday morning, at the very same time as the priests were in the temple offering up the first fruits of the harvest, Jesus Christ rose from the dead and became the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. We read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to dig into that a little more deeply in a few moments. So I say happy first fruits to you all. That's the biblical way to say happy Easter. Now, the message of Easter is the central message of the gospel. I'm not talking about bunnies and eggs and candy and all that fun stuff. That's fun stuff. That's not the central message of the gospel. I'm talking about the truth and the facts. These are facts. These aren't fables, cleverly devised tales that people have made up and passed down through the generations just to help people feel good about themselves. No, these are facts, historically documented facts that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty we owe for our sins. That's right. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. Every one of us in this room is a sinner. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that. We know it in the depths of our heart and soul, that we just don't measure up, that we are somehow, someway unclean, that we have sin deep within our hearts and in our lives. And we know there's a problem with that. You know, it's just in there in our souls. You know, there's a problem with that sin. Sometimes we've rationalized it and, you know, tried to gloss over it. We try to clean it up ourselves. But with, you know, the stack of good deeds over here will outweigh the stack of bad things that I've done. And somehow it'll be okay. But we know in our heart and soul that, you know, we don't have any peace about that. We know we're sinners. We know somehow, some way, God's put it in our hearts that we deserve judgment and condemnation and wrath for our sins. And, you know, the Bible tells us clearly there's no place for dirty, rotten sinners in the presence of a holy and perfect God. You're not going to make it there on your own. God cannot allow dirty, rotten sinners to be in his presence. It doesn't work like that. And no amount of our so-called good deeds can make us clean and good enough to make things right. That's just the fact of it. We also know the penalty for sin is death. Adam and Eve sinned against God. They were cast out of the garden. They died. Not at that very moment, but they eventually died. Every one of us in this room, 100% statistic, will die. 100%. The penalty for sin is death. Sin is the cause of suffering and death in the world. You know, as we go through grief and pain and sorrow and struggle, so often we ask, why, God? Why do we have to suffer so? Why do we have to struggle so? Why does life have to be so difficult? The answer is sin. Sin is the cause of suffering and struggle and death in the world. We have a big problem. It's a big, big problem. Sin is deadly. It's a disease that everyone is born with. And without <clears throat> God's intervention to save us, we would have absolutely no hope in this world. But God did intervene. Jesus, the Son of God, because of his great love with which he has loved us, humbled himself. He came to save us. He laid aside his glory. Became a little baby. Born of the Virgin Mary. Lived a perfect and sinless life. Offered up his perfect and sinless life as a sacrifice for our sins. His blood was shed for us. He died the death we all deserve. 
but it doesn't end there. Jesus rose from the grave. This is the second core truth of the gospel message. Jesus died on the cross. Then he rose from the grave on the third day to give us victory over sin, to give us victory over death, as Pastor Rob just spoke of. And the promise of redemption and eternal life in him. All who believe in Jesus will not perish, but have eternal life. That's John 3.16. That's the message. These are the four truths of Christianity itself. And if you believe these things, then rejoice today. Rejoice in the Lord Jesus today. Tell yourself these truths over and over again. Preach the gospel to yourself every single day. The gospel is not a one-time thing that's like, oh, I believed in that. Now I'm going to put it on the shelf over here and get to something, you know, a little bit more interesting. <laughs> no, we preach the gospel to ourselves every single day because guess what? We are sinners who need a savior and Jesus came to save us. And he rose from the grave that we will have eternal life with faith in him. Now, if you don't believe these things, then repent. It's as simple as that. Repent and believe today. Some of you are saying, well, that's interesting. I've heard those stories before, but I don't really believe that. Then I say, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today and be saved. Turn from your old way of thinking that you can save yourself if you're a good person. And turn to Jesus and trust in him. Trust in his work alone to be saved today. Repent. That's what repent means. It means to turn. You're turning from one way of thinking and living to following Jesus another way. You're going to turn around. Trust in Jesus and his work. And walk by faith in him. So if you don't believe that, repent today. You can have abundant and eternal life in Jesus. Cry out to him and be saved from your sins today. And if you do believe in him, be encouraged today. Rejoice in him today. That is the simple and soul-saving gospel message. And I pray that you will rejoice in it today. Now, what I want to do is talk about these truths in the context of the, the Old Testament and connect some Old Testament teachings and learnings to what we see in the New Testament. These truths are pointed to by two feasts observed by the Jewish people and prescribed by God in the Old Testament, the books of Exodus and Leviticus. These things were written for our learning so that as believers today, we can learn from them. We can have a more rich worship experience in God, knowing this is the plan God had all along for us. These were the things he was trying to show us all along. The feast of Passover points to Jesus's death on the cross to deliver us from the bondage to sin. The feast of first fruits, which I just spoke of when I opened up, points to Jesus's resurrection from the dead and the redemption and eternal life we have in him. Across the ages, God has sought out his people Israel in order to bless them and make them a blessing to all nations. He has also entrusted Israel with a sacred trust to bear his name and be the nation from which his redemption plan for the world would go forth. The redemptive plan is illustrated in the annual feasts that the Lord instituted for our learning. There's actually a resource over there on the shelf, a Messiah in the Feast of Israel. I pray you, you know, check that out. Go look into it. We're going to dig into first fruits today. There's, there's so much richness in understanding these truths from the Feast of Israel. These feasts are a part of the biblical and historical foundation for our faith. Understanding them can enrich and deepen our worship experience. They help us see the richness of God's love for us and his plan for salvation. And so some of you might be thinking, oh, man, he's going to talk about first fruits today. What does that mean? And how does that even matter today? I pray that you'll just kind of bear with me in this. Come along with me on this journey. 
this is something I've known, you know, personally for many years, and I've preached a lot of Easter messages. You can go on the website and see, you know, Isaiah 53, and from the Gospels, and, and from uh, Philippians 2, and 1 Corinthians 15, and all those are there, and this one I'm thinking, you know, I really want to share this today. God, you know, really put it on my heart to share this with you today, so you can come along with me in this, in this journey, and understanding these great truths, and my hope, this is my hope, that by understanding first fruits better, we might grasp a clearer understanding of the plan and love that God has for your life and for mine. And that you will be excited to share this good news with others. Jesus is the fulfillment of the feasts and the purpose for their existence. The entire old covenant is fulfilled in Messiah Jesus. Now, we discuss Passover each week as we observe the Lord's Supper. So I'd like today to understand in more depth the significance of first fruits. I want us to see how Jesus's resurrection from the dead gives us a living hope in our souls and great joy in our lives. This isn't a mere academic exercise. No. The purpose of this is that you'll have a living hope in your soul and great joy in your life. You know, I can confess coming into this week as I was working to prepare the messages, I just had this very heavy feeling this week. I just wasn't feeling it. Wasn't feeling it this week. And it's been a rough several months for my family. We've had deaths in the family. Uh, I've struggled in many different ways. And I just wasn't feeling it. And I'm crying out to God, God, help me. Help me see your beauty, Lord Jesus. Help me rejoice in you this week and in this time. And as I dug deeper into his word and saw these great truths, you know, those feelings in my soul began to change. And I began to rejoice in what he has done for you and for me. And I want to share it with you today. And so please turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. Let's dig into all of this more. We'll look at Leviticus chapter 23, starting in verse 9. And in this section of Leviticus, all of the feasts are being prescribed. They're being outlined. Like, here's what you need to do. He starts with the Sabbath, and then he starts with, and then he goes to the Passover, and then he talks about first fruits. And so this is where the feast of first fruits is prescribed. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 9. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheep, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord, as with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, fourth of a hen. You shall eat neither, you shall... Eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until the same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever, throughout your generations and in all your dwellings. So here we have the feast of first fruits described and prescribed. Now, what in the world does that mean, and how does it matter for us today? I mean, really? Well, I'm glad you asked. So after sunset, at the end of the Sabbath, people were delegated to go into the different barley fields with sickles and obtain samples from each field. This is what was happening in those times. The barley for the, first, uh, for the Passover first fruits offering was laid together in a sheaf and brought to the court of the temple. There the grain was winnowed, parched, and bruised in a mortar. The next morning, after some incense had been sprinkled on it, they sprinkled the incense on it, 
on the sheep. The priest would wave it. It was a wave offering. They do all kinds of these wavy movements. They point it to the different points of the compass, and do all this movement stuff, and they would offer it. Throw it into the fire on the altar. And then once the offering was accepted, the remainder of the harvest was then acceptable before God. Lots of different principles being taught here. We should give our first and our best to God. Don't give God your leftovers and your crumbs. You don't want your leftovers and crumbs. He wants your first and best. And here was the first and best of the harvest. The first of the harvest would be accepted as an offering. Then the rest of the harvest could be accepted. Key point there. See how that connects with our lives in just a moment. We know that Jesus died as our Passover lamb. On the cross, he died. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He died on the cross as the Passover lamb. And through him, we have redemption and forgiveness. The scriptures state that the, the day following the Sabbath, after Passover, the priest would present the first fruits of the harvest to the Lord so that the rest of the harvest would be accepted. The Feast of First Fruits is observed the day after the Sabbath of Passover week. The Sunday after Passover would be the celebration of First Fruits. Friday, we just celebrated Passover. Yesterday was the Sabbath. Today is First Fruits. Every year, it points to what Jesus did. Every year. Jesus, our Savior, died for our sins on Passover. On the third day, early that Sunday morning, the priests were in the temple offering up the first fruits of the harvest. At that same time, our Savior Jesus, our high priest, was raised from the dead, offering up himself as our atonement. And in doing so, he became the first fruits of the rest of the harvest of believers in him. Jesus, the first fruits, we are the rest of the harvest. The Apostle Paul writes about the significance of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 20. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So that's a clue right there. So I'm reading 1 Corinthians 15. I see this first fruits of those fallen asleep. Paul, what are you talking about? First fruits. And so that's when I start looking. First fruits. I got this little Bible software that's really good and start searching. First fruits, first fruits. Oh, that goes back to Leviticus 23 because it wasn't in my cross references. Silly Bible. It doesn't have it all in the cross references. Like I had to find that. There's a connection there. Paul's teaching us. So if, you're, if you don't see it at face value right in your Bible, dig a little bit deeper. Go deeper into God's word. You'll find amazing things in there. How this is, oh, this is like a, a beautiful tapestry woven together for our joy. Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that's Adam came into the world. He sinned. We all died from because of Adam. By as one man came death, through one man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each one in his own, each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers up the kingdom to God. So you see the picture there? What Christ has done and is doing was all demonstrated through the first fruits offering. The harvest offering was a symbol that points to the future. It points to a time when God's people would be raised from the dead and be accepted by him and live eternally with him in his kingdom. Christ, the first fruits, raised from the dead, is the guarantee for all those who come, who belong to him, that they will also share in Jesus's resurrection and eternal life. That's the guarantee, the down payment, the deposit. It's guaranteed. Jesus was raised bodily from the dead on that Sunday 
because it was the day after the Sabbath of the Passover week. As Passover pictures that were redeemed from bondage by the blood of the Lamb, first fruits pictures that we are now raised up as first fruits for God's use. First fruits cannot be celebrated apart from Passover. And Jesus' resurrection can never be celebrated apart from his death on the cross, his sacrifice for us. These things come together. Now, it's interesting to know, I don't know if you know, noticed this in the first part of Leviticus that we read, that first fruits was only celebrated after entering the promised land. That was Leviticus 23, verse 10. Did you notice that? It's when you come into the land. It was not a wilderness feast or one celebrated while the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt. And so also Jesus's resurrection speaks of life after and beyond this wilderness journey of struggle in this life. This resurrection life cannot be understood while in the bondage of sin. In fact, it wasn't until after first fruits was observed that the new growth of grain could be eaten. So in the same way, it was not until after Jesus's resurrection that believers could fully partake of the new growth, even new life in him. It was only after Jesus had been raised and ascended to the Father that we received the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. We read about that in Romans chapter 8. We just went through that in Romans chapter 8, verse 23. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. See how this all works together? It's like a beautiful tapestry. And don't we groan inwardly as we eagerly wait for adoption? Some of you younger ones, and they're like, no, nah, I don't groan inwardly as I wait for adoption. I just want to go play football. <laughs> I just want to go play with my friends or whatever. You're not you don't feel that, but I can tell you, man, as we get older, I groan inwardly. <laughs> Redeem this broken, dilapidated body of mine, Lord Jesus. We groan inwardly for our redemption. And it's in that hope that we're saved. Now, all this talk of feasts and rising from the dead, it might be really hard to fully grasp. I, I get that. I mean, it's hard for most people to understand, let alone believe and trust in it. Some of you might be sitting there like, man, this is really weird stuff. <laughs> I don't get this. Or how can they really believe that stuff? Well, look, even Jesus's disciples had a tough time understanding it and believing it. And they saw him face to face. They had trouble believing in it. In John chapter 20, we see three of Jesus's followers who visit the tomb earlier or early in the morning on that Sunday morning. John chapter 20, I'll read that for us. Verses 1 through 10. On the first day of the week, when Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, that's John, the one whom Jesus loved. I love how John writes about himself like that. It's very interesting. And, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and, and we don't know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, that's John, and they were going towards the tomb. Now they ran there. Some of the other gospels account for that. They ran to the tomb. Both of them were running together. Well, here we go. But the other disciple outran Peter. He's better in better shape. He outran Peter, reached the tomb first, and stooping, look, he stooped to look into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. So John's there. He gets there first. He looks in the tomb. He's checking things out because you, you, you don't go in a tomb as a Jewish person. I mean, that you would be unclean be ceremonially unclean. You wouldn't be able to partake in the feast. You have to go through all the rituals to become clean again and all that stuff. So John's like, I'm not going in there. I'm just looking here. And so he's looking in. Then Peter shows up and we all know Peter. You read the gospels. Peter's all gung-ho, man. He's just, he's awesome. 
Peter came following him. He goes into the tomb. He's like, I'm going, I've got to check this out. The stones roll away. I'm going in. I don't care about that other stuff. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. So now he's, Peter's in there. I'm going in. And he saw and believed. John sees this and he believes. Very interesting. Verse 9, for they had did not yet understand the scripture. Now, these guys have been with Jesus for years, seen all the miracles. He told them. How many times did he tell them, right? Guys, I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried, and I'm going to rise again on the third day. And every time he said it, there's, yeah, he goes again talking about that stuff again. They did not yet understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. And then what did they do? They went back to their homes. <laughs> that was interesting. They're going back home after seeing that? Like, really? I just, okay. They went back to their homes. Now, this is a remarkable account. Notice that Mary is mentioned first. She had come to the tomb first to honor Jesus. It was early on Sunday morning when she arrived. She sees that Jesus is not there. She runs to get Peter and John and tells them that Jesus has been taken away. She doesn't know who took Jesus or why. She just knows that Jesus is gone doesn't know who took him or why. He's just gone. <clears throat> now, even today, some who deny the resurrection have said that someone took away the body. Many say that it was the disciples who stole the body away. So we'll deal with some of this. It's, you know, pretty unlikely that some ragtag fishermen and tax collectors would overpower a band of Roman soldiers, a garrison guarding this tomb. You can see in the other gospel accounts that Roman soldiers were there to guard the tomb and secure it. So some ragtag, scared group of fishermen and tax collectors aren't going to overpower Roman soldiers and steal a body away. Others say, well, maybe grave robbers took the body. But, you know, why would grave robbers, let's just reason together a little bit. Right? Why would grave robbers take the body out of the grave cloths and leave the grave cloths there and take him away naked somewhere. I mean, why would they do that? Let's just be logical here. They would not do that. If they were taking the body thinking there was treasure with it, they would have taken all of it, everything, all wrapped up and everything neatly wrapped up. They would have made their escape. Then they would have unwrapped the grave cloths and looked for the, the stuff they were trying to steal. So that, that doesn't make any sense. Come on, logically think about it. And some have said, well, the, you know, the Jewish authorities kind of worked all this out. Well, they wouldn't have done that. They would not have stolen the body or taken it away or even permitted it to be taken at all. That would only confirm Jesus's prediction of his resurrection. Because even if you look at some of the other gospels, they said, well, you know, Secure that tomb now because you remember how he talked about rising from the grave on the third day. We can't let that happen. We can't let that news get out because that would make it worse than the beginning. So the Jewish authorities wouldn't have had his body removed. They were guarding against that. Now notice in John chapter 20, verses 4 through 5, 4 and 5, Peter and John run to investigate Mary's claim. Now, we are confronted with facts of Jesus's resurrection that must be dealt with. It's time to come face to face with them with some facts. You got to deal with these facts. Every one of us has to deal with these facts in our own way and in our hearts. And just as the disciples had doubts, there are likely some here today that have doubts. That just aren't sure about all this. But I want to encourage you and tell you today that our faith is based on facts, the facts of his death, the fact of his burial, the fact of his resurrection. 
our faith is not based on how we feel about all of this or our feelings about any of it. Our faith is based on facts. It's very logical. I'm not asking people to have some kind of wonderful emotional experience, then you'll believe. No, it's, it's more, it's much, much deeper than that. Our faith is based on fact and truth. There is truth. And it's, it's in this book, the Bible. We know it is a fact that Jesus was declared dead by professional Roman executioners. That is a fact. They were professionals. They knew that their business was killing people. And he was declared dead by them. He was wrapped in burial cloths, embalmed, buried, and entombed. That is a fact. Everything about that is factual. We know from John 19, 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, he was afraid. He was a secret disciple. Some in here might be secret disciples too. Might be afraid outside of what, how, you know, this group, what other people think. Some of us are secret disciples in our workplace for fear of our coworkers. Some of us are secret disciples in our school environments, in our neighborhood, in our sports teams for fear of those people. You don't need to be a secret disciple. No. But I understand if you are, we're all in different places in our journey of faith. Joseph was one of those secret disciples. But he's not secret now. He's coming forth. He's like, I, I, I want Jesus's body. He goes to Pilate, the governor, and asks that he might take away the body of Jesus. So he's overcome his fear. He's going straight to the governor. He wants Jesus's body. Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took his body away. Nicodemus also was one who was kind of a secret disciple. He's there now, too. He came at night. He was kind of afraid what the other Pharisees would think. He was a Pharisee. He had earlier come to Jesus by night. He came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So this is to prepare Jesus, you know, well, actually to embalm him as part of his burial, 75 pounds. So there's another fact. You know, you got a, about 150-pound man, another 75 pounds of um myrrh and aloes and spices to, you know, as part of his burial, you know, no one's easily picking up a 225 pound clumsy thing and just, you know, quickly taking it out of the tomb and getting past Roman guards. I mean, it's just not going to happen. So they took the body of Jesus. They bound it in linen cloths with, with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. All of this is fulfilling prophecy, by the way. Time doesn't permit us to look into all of it. But every line written here is a fulfillment of, of biblical prophecy. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Jesus is buried. We also know that the tomb was totally secured by a large stone, a garrison of soldiers, and a seal. You can find this in Matthew chapter 27. So for those of you who are doubting, I'm telling you specific scripture references. You can go look this up. It's historical fact. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud. He laid it in his own new tomb. This is Matthew 27 towards the end, verse 59 which he had cut in the rock. He rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, that is the day after of the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said three days Told everybody, oh, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples will go and steal him away and tell all the people. So, you know, they were on to this. 
They had a plan to take care of it. They'll go and tell all the people he's risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. This is Matthew 27. And once that gets out on Instagram and Facebook, it's going to be over for our plan. We got to secure that tomb, put up video surveillance and everything else, right? Make sure that doesn't get out that news that he's risen from the dead. That can't happen. We worked hard for all of this. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. So Pilate's still going along with all their requests. Okay, here's a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. And so they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting the guard. So let's wrap this up, the facts here. Jesus' tomb was highly secure. That is a fact. Now, isn't it interesting what was left in the tomb after all of that? When Peter and John arrive, they look in, they see the grave claws, the face claw. Why would they have been left behind? Why would someone steal Jesus' body and leave all that stuff? <laughs> they just wouldn't. It would actually have taken way too much work. Would have taken way too much work. They wouldn't do that. The fact is, the grave claws were there in the tomb. They were not cut or torn away. And that's interesting too. Yeah, you because know, you know, if Jesus, you know, came was just swooning, like never really died, you know, he wasn't fully God, fully man, what you know didn't have a spiritual resurrected body, you know, he'd have to like tear them off or somehow get them off and they'd be all strewn about, right? He'd be like, get these things off me. It's driving me crazy. <laughs> he couldn't even move really to get them off himself. You know, they wouldn't just be there like neatly folded. It wouldn't have happened that way. Think about it. Just think about the details of these things and how remarkable it is. They were laid neatly in the tomb. You see that in John chapter 20, verse 6. When they came, Peter saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. It wasn't even with the other grave cloths. They were just lying there in regular folds, as if, the body of Jesus kind of just vanished out of them, which is what happened. Now, another thing that's interesting. Interesting also, note that the stone that was sealed and closed off the tomb was rolled away. Now, why was the stone rolled away? Have you really thought about that? Was the stone rolled away so that Jesus could get out? That's a trick question. Was the stone rolled away so that Jesus could get out? No. The stone was not rolled away so that Jesus could get out. He did not have to move the stone to get out, and he wouldn't have been strong enough anyway. Just like he didn't have to tear apart the grave cloths to get out of them. The stone had been supernaturally moved, not to let Jesus out, but to let the others in. So that they could see with their own eyes, he's not here. He's risen just as he said he would. So that Peter could go in, John could go in. They could see in and see he was gone. Now, John realized this. And that's why it's noted in his gospel. He saw and he believed. They came to the tomb concerned and worried about Jesus. They left the tomb believing in Jesus. That's what the facts do. It may seem odd to those who have no faith in God, but faith is based on the validity of the object of faith. Before Peter or John had ever had an experience of seeing the risen Jesus, 
They, did you note that? They didn't see Jesus risen. They saw the empty tomb and the grave cloths lying there and believed. They didn't have to see him. That's faith. That's faith. Spiritual experience is a result of that faith, not the cause of the faith. Mary had a very different experience, didn't she? Mary didn't look at all the facts. She stood outside the tomb weeping. She was so caught up in her own misery and sadness that she didn't recognize Jesus as he even stood there talking with her. Down further in John chapter 20, verse 15, Jesus said to Mary, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I, I will take him away. Now, Mary, you know, she's caught up in her emotions. There's no way Mary's carrying a 225 pound body of Jesus anyway. But she's so caught up in her sadness. She just, just doesn't understand. He's just gone and she just can't, she can't move. She can't, she just feels so lost. She can't function. She doesn't understand. Tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, she, she finally turns and looks and Rabboni, which means teacher. Then she sees her eyes were open. It's him. She sees Jesus face to face. And, and isn't that how, you know, God is with us? So many of us were in different places of our faith journey. John, Peter, they see and they believe. They didn't have to see Jesus. They, they turned and they went back to their homes. Never, they didn't see him there. But Mary wasn't at that place. She needed to see him. And he reveals himself to her right there. And, and doesn't this happen to us sometimes? Sometimes we get caught up in our own sadness and our struggles to the point where we don't even see God's miracles and messengers right in front of us. We all get into places like that. And there's Jesus right in front of her. Then her eyes were open. Mary's tears were based on the story in her mind that Jesus was dead. His body had been stolen. The facts are that Jesus is alive. He has overcome death in the grave just as he said he would. And he's standing right in front of her. See the difference between our feelings so often and the facts of what's actually happened? <clears throat> now, when she hears her name and Jesus' familiar voice, she emphatically responds, Rabbi and I. And Jesus, what does he tell her? He says, go, tell the disciples that he is ascending to God and the Father. Jesus was ascending back to first fruits. He's ascending to bring the first fruits offering to heaven. As the priest offered the first fruits in the temple, Jesus, our high priest, offered his atonement to his father in heaven. That's why Jesus prophesied numerous times that he would be killed on Passover, be raised on the third day in order to bring the first fruits offering to the throne of grace. As Paul later writes, he's raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus, our first fruits from the dead. And so you and I, brothers and sisters, we can have assurance that he is our Passover lamb. Who takes away the sin of the world because he is our first fruits that brings his atonement before God to remove our sins forever. Forevermore. And notice here in John, this is the first time that he calls the disciples my brothers. In verse 17, chapter 20, verse 17. He says to Mary, go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God, and your God. 
In his resurrection, we are now his brothers. We are his brothers and sisters. We're not mere disciples. We're in the family of God. We're children of God. Brothers and sisters. He calls us brother, sister, friend, and we call him Savior and Lord. The resurrection not only assures us that our sins are forgiven, but that we have a new relationship with the living God. We are children of God, as John writes in 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And back to the first fruits feasts. The first fruits gave assurance that the rest of the harvest would be accepted. Jesus, as first fruits of the resurrection from the dead, guarantees our eternal hope and life in him. We are the rest of the harvest that will be accepted, those who believe and follow him by faith. The offering of the wave sheep sanctified the whole harvest. Your eternal assurance of full acceptance by God is in Jesus's resurrection. His resurrection was proof that God accepted his sacrifice for our sins. The word in Hebrew for accepted means much more than that. It means pleased or delighted in that sacrifice. So God doesn't just barely accept us, but in Jesus, he's delighted and well pleased with us and completely accepts us. And because of this, we also will be raised from the dead someday. To live with the Lord in his kingdom. We also will rise from the dead as Jesus rose from the dead. We read about that in 1 Corinthians 15. I want you to turn there. And I want to wrap up with two passages that help us understand the ramifications of our resurrection from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 50. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 50. It says this, <clears throat> I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. When he says sleep, that means die physically. So as he's writing this, not everyone at that moment will die physically because Jesus will come and some people will still be living and look up in the sky and see him. And that's what he means by we shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, we sang about that in the hymns. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must also put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, and sisters, be steadfast. So how does this apply? Okay, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So we have hope. Our labor is not in vain. We do not fear death. And if you're fearing death, you have no reason to fear death. Some of us have family members, loved ones that are very sick, or many have even passed this year. And there is a real fear of death. But we can be assured that those who love the Lord Jesus, trusting in him, there is no fear of death. 
We have victory over death in Jesus. We have hope in our grieving for those who have died, knowing that they are with the Lord and we will also be with the Lord someday by faith. And there's one other passage I want us to look at. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. I've been thinking about this one a lot this year. I have family members who are very sick near death. I have family members that have passed on. And the grief is real. And some of you, this has been a hard year. You have had family members go on to be with the Lord. You have had family members pass away. You might have family members or friends that are very sick and near death. And these, these words comfort our hearts. We have victory over death. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says this. And I'm, I'm reading it like I'm reading it to us all right now. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That means those who have died. They have passed on. That you may not grieve as others who do not have hope or who have no hope. So we grieve. When our family and our friends pass on, we grieve. And it's right to grieve. But we do not grieve as those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's the Easter message. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord will himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So Christ rose. He's the first fruit. We are the rest of the harvest. And this is what it will be in that day for us. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And so let us encourage one another with these words. And so in those times of grief, when a brother or sister of yours is grieving because of a loved one that's lost or a family member that's lost, has passed on to be with the Lord, let's encourage one another with these words. Let's comfort one another with these words. Easter is such a special day. I hope that you will rejoice in these great truths and be encouraged in your hearts. I pray you will rejoice in Jesus today and believe in him. Let us exalt our Savior as first fruits of the resurrection. Let us share with others the good news of the new life that we have in Jesus today and forevermore. Amen.